No, I messed up. Let's try it again. This is More Than Therapy Podcast More Than Therapy This is More Than Therapy More Than Therapy Podcast This is More Than Therapy More Than Therapy Podcast This is More Than Therapy Podcast Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Modern Therapy Podcast. Today's guest is Sam Shapiro, and today we're going to talk about life coaching, but mainly we're going to talk about why helping doesn't have to hurt. Um, in Sam's own words, she's a passionate coach, consultant, speaker, and facilitator who comes alive in service of those who live to serve others. Her practice serves mission-driven leaders, healers, and helpers in their work to heal the world without harming themselves. Since 2013, she's coached, taught, and consulted with leaders and healers in community clinics, acute care hospitals, mental health programs, and a pandemic response center on their path toward elevated impact, greater fulfillment, and enhanced well-being for themselves, their teams, and the people they serve. Today's special guest, Sam Shapiro. Hello, Sam, how are you doing today? Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I'm well. How are you? Thank you. I think this particular podcast episode is very much needed as myself. If I'm not already burnt out, I definitely am in the rims of being burned out. And I have colleagues who have said the same to me in our collective circle regarding them wanting to walk away from the field and do something else, even though their degree and their licensures may be in mental health. It's just that I don't know, coming out of the pandemic or the high addiction um, impact that the pandemic has shown us as it it might have always been there, but now we just see it more. I can't really put a finger on it. It's like people are more damaged and it's like the work you do isn't as impactful as you thought it might have been when you look at your caseload as a whole, life Mm -hmm. work as a whole, and you just feel like, what am I doing? And I'm hurting more, and I, how can I be effective if I'm not hurting, you know? Yeah, I mean, there is an endemic burnout, right, in the helping professions, and there was before COVID, long before COVID, and COVID just put a really intense sort of irrefutable filter on it where we had to look it in the face. Um, and it did exacerbate it in a lot of ways And part of my own path to this work, I've been on this trajectory, I think before I fully knew I was for years, Uh, but during the COVID pandemic and my role in it, I I worked for the Department of Public Health in San Francisco. I really recognized that healing the helpers, helping the helpers couldn't be more important. And it was probably what my life had been about the whole time. So it became my more singular focus. And I've started to center that work more and more since going through that myself as somebody who was mobilized to be part of the COVID response from a health operations perspective. And I would just look up around me and all the faces of these super skillful, really passionate, really committed healers and leaders, there was just this utter exhaustion and fear and like a threatening to collapse energy among us, right? And it just became really clear Uh, It's in the times that we feel we can afford at least that we need to take time to reflect on what we need the most, right? It can be so challenging to pause, let alone ask for help, let alone do the work once we get the help to turn it into positive impact for ourselves so we can be of service to other people. Indeed, indeed. What has your path to this world looked like? I mean, I know you just gave us some information regarding that. But how did you become the professional that you are regarding helping the helping professionals? Yeah, I, 
It's interesting, right? It's very easy to see when we look back how we've been on a path that's led us here all along. I didn't fully appreciate it until the last couple of years, as we just talked about. But really, I think for me, my path into this work started by just the family that I was born into. Um, I'm a first-generation college graduate. My parents themselves experienced homelessness and addiction and uh, mental health challenges in their teens. They had really unsupportive families. And I think what that did uh, is, as I grew up with greater relative privilege than my parents had experienced, gave me a really strong sense that my life was supposed to be about being of service to others. And to some extent, I over, uh, over-identified with that, perhaps, and that contributed to some of my early experiences of burnout, taking too much responsibility for fixing and helping and saving rather than empowering uh, myself so that I could empower others, right? It's that, like, uh, that delicate balance that I think many of us need to find and find again in our lives. But I think I, I like to say I'm a recovering perfectionist and a recovering overachiever. And I have long battled my own brain in my work to try to find ways to live a meaningful life that also doesn't hurt me, deplete me, um, and one that can fulfill me and give me joy, even as I'm having impact and being of service. So that's part of how my lived experience contributes to my work. And as you said, you know, I've worked in a variety of different environments mostly in the safety net of healthcare. And each of those experiences really, really helped me to see that at the root of all of the interactions I was having, my job on paper was always like helping to solve really hard problems. Um, but the, the real meat of it, the real heart of it was that these were human beings who were suffering while also trying to relieve human suffering. So the conversations I ended up having, the kind of in-between-the-lines work that I was doing was helping a leader or a clinician see themselves differently in relationship to the work, think about how they might be able to lead themselves and others more effectively. Um, and so it just became really clear to me that that was what we were up to, really, deep down underneath the, the projects or the initiatives or the targets we thought we were striving for. It was really the work of human thriving and human transformation, um, which, of course, feeds me uh, more than anything else does. So I, you know, everything that I was encountering as I was sitting with these people, leading alongside these people, doing this incredible work and feeling so incredibly burned out by it, was that really all of this boils down, of course, this isn't going to be a surprise to you or to many folks in the audience, all of that suffering we were experiencing boiled down to our relationship with our own minds, right? The thoughts that plagued us, the feelings that flowed from those thoughts. And to me, that's really like what self-leadership means. And I tell myself a leadership resilience coach. And what we're working on isn't just how you show up for others. How do you regulate? How do you seek co-regulation from your community? How do you return to center when you get thrown off, right? And I think that is like this essential building block of being a person, let alone a happy person and an effective one. Um, and it's just this, this core piece of our thriving as individuals, our relationships, and the impact we want to have in the world. So I, um, I launched my private practice team after that long path of discovering that coaching and helping people to transform their relationship to their minds was what my life was about. And I recently took the plunge and became my own boss full time in my private practice. So exciting and humbling. And lots of opportunities to keep doing this work with and for myself, in addition to supporting the clients and the organizations that I'm getting to work with. Indeed, indeed. Well, I'm glad that your path led you to this path because, you know, it's much needed. And there needs to be more Sam Shapiro's in the field. That needs to be a necessary part of organizations because a helping person can do so much damage when they're hurting in regards to the work they do. They may not be as... Mm -hmm on point regarding seeing like situations that might need a higher level of care or they might not see warning signs as readily because they're dealing with their own stuff internally. So not really giving that particular client what they need in order to be successful. 
You're absolutely right. And I think a big part of what both excites me and feels really challenging about this work right now is that against the backdrop of the economic difficulties that we're facing and we know we're going to intensify in the coming years, a lot of organizations are saying how passionate they are about getting to the bottom of their retention crisis, their engagement crisis, their morale crisis, but they're also feeling reticent to invest in this in a big way. Um, and that to me feels like a really sticky, maybe a knot of limiting beliefs that are kind of coming into conflict. Um, that, that personal development and leadership development and healing ourselves to heal others is like a luxury for when times are good rather than an essential survival strategy for when they're not. And I, I'm sure you can appreciate that. Folks who work in this field can appreciate that. And like our work is how do we help organizations to see that in the clarity and with the conviction that we note it to be true. Indeed, like, you know, a, a company, a mental health agency might, their mission statement, when they first start out, when they're small, small, you know, their, their mission statement is spot on. They really want to help the people. But then as, you know, other investors come on or if they're acquired by a larger umbrella that may not have been in the field, but sees mental health or addictions as a lucrative business based on the funding sources, then the mission statement gets kind of grayed or it doesn't seem as more focused as it seems more focused on productivity versus quality care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you're pointing to something really important there that ramifies, I think, throughout this whole conversation about like what is the, the individual intervention that we need to be thinking about and the like person level intervention and what's the system and structural level, right? So yes, so much of this is about how do we heal our own relationships to our, our internal operating system, our minds, our thoughts, right? And there are systems in which we live and work that make it really hard for us to live our values. So the way that I hold that is like, when people are resourced, when they feel seen and held and they can greet themselves with some self-compassion even when what they're experiencing is really difficult, we're capable of so much more creativity and problem solving. We have so much more energy to advocate for those structural changes that need to take place. And that's part of what's underneath for me, this core belief that every leader in every organization, whether or not it self-identifies as a helping organization, needs to be comfortable doing some level of coaching because that's really where we, we engage folks in solving their own problems. We allow people to feel like their voices are being heard. And we then develop this groundswell. There's extra arms and legs to do the work because people feel like they're being enrolled actively in fixing what isn't working rather than simply bringing something up the chain and waiting for it to land, waiting for something to come back down that's going to address the system barriers that they experience every day. So holding that in balance too is, is challenging, right? And it's a frequent thing that I hear back from organizations like, well, how do we how does individual coaching for our leaders help create system change? And I feel like it's kind of an ecosystem model, right? Like it's all connected. It's all in a web. And if we're neglecting a piece of that web, how can we expect the whole picture to be a healthy one? Excellent point, Sam. I remember I was like, when I started working for this company recently, they wasn't, they didn't have a supervisor for cl a clinical, a clinical supervisor for a while. So they were all doing types of wrong <laughs> regarding interventions and administrative work mm -hmm. and a correct action plan for the utilization manager. But when I met with the clients, I mean, when I met with the clinicians, I didn't go, I didn't want to come from a punitive place. I wanted to come from a, a place of strength. So what probably my supervisor wanted me to do was sit, do this, 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 and that by this time. But I said, I spoke very little and asked for their input regarding, you know, how to move forward and getting mm. some of these things forward. What has worked for you? What has not worked for you? What do you need to be more successful? And I think mm -hmm. that initiated a, a better rapport and a better momentum to doing the work that needed to be done because they were so damaged. They were so burnt out and they were not mm -hmm. being effective. That's based on they didn't have enough clinicians. They didn't have a supervisor. And the culture of the client base was that way for such a long time of dose and go 
that they didn't know how to be different because they were so accustomed to doing the way that it was being done over the last four years or five years, you know, prior to the pandemic. Mm. That is such a rich example. I'm so glad you offered that, Chris, because not only does that have hugely healing impact for the people who received it, but also as leaders, it allows us to to have so many more creative solutions at our fingertips because you and I, no matter how hard we work or how smart we are, how many degrees we may possess, we are never going to be as smart as the collective. We're never going to be as capable of transforming a system as a team of people who are all motivated around creating that change, right? So it actually, it can feel like a lot of work to move into the coaching mindset if we're not used to it as leaders. But in that example, right, you, you perhaps had to resist the pressure on you and may have had to resist the sort of internal sense of urgency. But ultimately, that creates so many more ripples to support positive change than if you had just come in and said, here's what we're going to do, right? And knowing when it's time to coach and when it's time to direct um, is a really important nuanced conversation we need to be having with ourselves. But I hold that the vast majority of situations we encounter as leaders are really well served by doing exactly what you just described, asking, being curious, showing people that we believe they are creative and resourceful and capable and looking to them to create some of their own solution. I mean, we hold the container for that solution finding, right? We help to set the vision, but there's so much creative potential that gets harnessed that way when we show up as a coach first. Indeed, indeed. Thank you for that supportive statement. Why is coaching such an important core competency for every leader? And why does it have, what does it have to do with resilience and burnout? I mean, we just kind of touched on that, but let's expand on that a little bit because I just don't believe leaders understand how to be leaders, especially as it pertains to coaching. They feel like if there's a mandate or if there's a statute, do it. But that is not enough or cannot be enough. And you wonder why you have such high turnover or don't or don't have adequate people coming into your agency to do the good work because they might have mm -hmm. been in a circle that they've got privy to the information on how your leadership style is impacting the recovery circle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm, of course, I could talk about this all day long. I'm thinking like, what is the most essential top line couple bullet points here? I think the first piece is just when we come in here, it's actually this, we're going to back up. It's the distinction between leadership and management. Okay. When we're managing, we're controlling outcomes by managing tasks. We're sort of skimming the surface of a scenario and trying to maintain order so that we can get where we need to go. It's kind of linear, right? Leadership is multi-directional and it goes deeper. So here's how I hold it. I almost imagine that we are standing with our arms outstretched. And on one hand, we're sort of beckoning to the folks behind us, hey, come with me. We're enrolling them, we're involving them, we're enabling them, we're skilling them up, we're inspiring them. And then with the other hand that's extended out front, we're pointing the way. So we are still setting vision. We're still holding, okay, there's this mandate. We've got to get there, guys, right? But we're also asking, what path should we explore? What do we need in order to explore that effectively? What, if anything, do we need to be thinking about and planning for ahead of time? And then you are holding the container you're supporting future progress, and you're also way deepening the well of resources that you're drawing from to get where you need to go. What we know additionally is people do not leave jobs, they leave leaders. Anybody who is really concerned about retention and engagement on their team, being a coach means that you are looking at each of your people as though your primary responsibility to them is to help them grow and thrive and become all that they can be. That is a powerful antidote for this retention crisis that we're facing, especially in the helping professions. People crave feeling invested in and seen, just like the clients and patients that we serve, right? We know that that is a fundamental piece of humaning connection matters. 
So if in your one-on-ones with your team, you're asking them, what really matters to you that you work on this week and how can I help you? That is a really different way to show up and it's going to allow them to feel invested in and make it much easier for them to see themselves working alongside you for a lot longer. Um, There's more to say there and I'm wanting to rein it in to see what thoughts, what, um, how that lands for you. What else you think might be missing that needs to be spoken here? No, no, that, that, that captures it. It just feels like leaders, I think once they become leaders, they don't realize, you know, the impact that, you know, further education, getting CEUs, getting trainings as it pertains to becoming, you know, getting some life coach type of skill sets, you know, to motivate, utilize, utilizing motivational techniques in order to mm-hmm. inspire. People don't really resonate with being told what to do and then having the outcome match what was told to them per se. That works in some circles, but I just don't think that works for longevity regarding employment retention. Right. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the really cool things about a lot of the coach trainings that are out there specifically for leaders, we could talk about a couple of those at the end if it's of interest to people, is that it also provides an opportunity for us as leaders to really look at ourselves, to begin to notice the ways that we're showing up and how that may be a mismatch between how we're intending to create impact and the impact we're truly having. So it allows us to build that deeper well of insight. It allows us to build new muscle for how to self-manage our reactions to difficult situations that may come up. So instead of leading with the frustration you may feel if we miss a target, you're also practicing grounding yourself and then reaching for curiosity instead of something more diagnostic like, why didn't we do X, Y, or Z, right? Tell me why we made this decision. Tell me how it impacted us. What can we learn from this? then becomes something that we start to feel some muscle memory around and it becomes much easier to come from that place even when something in the external environment is is agitating or inflaming that older habitual part of ourselves that's wanting to just get in there, fix it, right? Um, There's a lot of really beautiful stuff about doing this work that I treasure every single day. I can't be a coach effectively if I am not coaching myself every single day seeking coaching and mentoring and inspiration from those who've come before me and those who can help me see myself. So to your earlier point, right, we can't pour from an empty cup. I am refilling my cup and I am doing my own work in order to support other people. And that also has a lot to do with this resilience and burnout piece of your question, because what we're able to do then is model both in how we show up non-verbally, energetically, and in the things that we say, that balancing the whole human picture matters to us. We are imperfect human beings doing our best. We're all growing. None of us is going to be right all the time. Every challenge and opportunity we face is an opportunity for growth and learning. If you're showing up as a coach who is also coaching yourself, the ripples of that are going to Uh, to spread and make it possible for other people to feel safe exploring themselves, growing, acknowledging their own growth areas has a lot to do with psychological safety, which again has a lot to do with our ability to recover from traumatic situations at work and beyond work and to keep coming back uh, because we are re-resourcing ourselves in between those chapters that are really challenging for us. Indeed, indeed. Well, we've spoke about it in, in ways, but let's talk, let's hit it directly. How can coaching individuals support organizational thriving? Well, my opinion is if you just tell people what to do over and over again, they may become resistance to doing it because they're not finding fulfillment in doing it or they do it and then all of a sudden that 100% which is supposedly done becomes 120% but it's still getting paid out as 100% if that makes sense like doing more work for the same pay or less pay as payment does not often equate um, the situation that we find ourselves in in America today with inflation Um, I know in, in my field 
I say I, I pursue ongoing supervision. I pay for ongoing supervision, even after licensure or certification, because I feel touching base and talking to somebody who is a, <clears throat> a veteran or who has more knowledge than me or has been in the business longer than me will be able to give me insight. I was talking to a friend recently regarding the need for males to have mentors to look mm -hmm. for guidance from older generations. And she agreed that a lot of these young people, especially um, coming out of college, they might, they might, they may feel lost. They may have not come from homes that has that knowledge base, but if they were paired with a mentor or sought, sought out a mentor, they probably would have more success as many people in this day and time across the board feel lost. I really appreciate that you're bringing that here, Chris, because I, there is so much that we can offer people. It's really anchoring to feel seen and to feel like someone is invested in your growth and thriving, right? We know that in a therapeutic alliance, we know it's really important for even primary care health outcomes to feel respected and valued and heard by your primary care physician. This is a thing that is true about human beings, right? So if we have leaders who are capable of serving the learning and development of everyone who looks to them for leadership, it permeates on a really deep level. Uh, one of uh, a really powerful person in this space, Jennifer Garvey Berger, uh, recently said in a talk that, and I just loved this, I hope that it lands really beautifully for you as well and your listeners, but leaders don't just lead projects, teams, or people, they lead nervous systems. I'm letting that land we lead nervous systems. So what does that mean about an organization? It's a whole system of nervous systems. So our ability to be with what is difficult and return to center without just becoming reactive and pointing fingers, oh my God, that creates a culture of regulated and co-regulating nervous systems. And I think even beyond that, if we're thinking about some more tactical structural stuff, this goes back to something we talked about earlier. Having a coaching culture also means that you're developing an organization of capable problem solvers. That means that we know that senior leaders burn out too, right? It means that not every single decision needs to be held at the highest level by people who already have plates that are overflowing. It means that we can solve problems closer to when they first pop up before they turn into a crisis. It preserves our resources for more creative and strategic thinking rather than being reactive and simply responding to those crisis level situations that result when we don't have layer after layer of person who feels like it's their job to help us improve and they're empowered to help with that. So it has a lot to do with psychological safety and in the healing profession, physical safety, like you were speaking about. Um, being able to catch something before it goes all the way down the line and really causes significant harm couldn't be more important to any of us, right? Who get out of bed in the morning to make the world better and to be of service to healing in the world. And then of course, there's lots of data on this. Some people like to tie it really quick, uh, really concretely to financial savings as an ROI. But I'm just going to say in this way that centers more of the human experience. This work also supports retention and engagement over the longer term. And there's not an organization on the face of this earth right now that isn't concerned about the financial outlook, about their ability to keep their staff, to hire new staff, to keep their staff happy and thriving and performing. And so this has everything to do with the stuff that is keeping organizational leaders up at night. And it's eminently doable. These are skills that people can learn. They're traits we can build over time. You don't have to feel like you're already a natural leader or a coach type person in order to bring more of this into the way that we lead. So the barriers are relatively low and the outcomes, the impacts are huge. If only the leaders would realize this or come to understand this, I wonder what would be the best way to get them that information, one, for they won't feel offended, which they often do, they're so emotionally driven, mm. and, to feel, and to be able to implement it, as a lot of times they feel like, oh, we're doing that, well, 
incur additional costs or remove away from productivity. What they're failing to realize is the cost is less than what it takes to retrain or reteach or to re, you know, to go out into the field and to get people to fill these positions or not have that position filled for an extended period of time because of what may or may not be going on in the field, as well as, you know, the people that are in the circle, their effectiveness may lower. They may not leave, but it, it may lower because other people aren't mm -hmm. there are leaving and that impacts morale and that impacts effectiveness. Yeah. So absolutely. in such a way that it really isn't a cost offset because ultimately it's cost effective moving forward. It is better to have somebody who's been with you who's effective for a number of years versus every nine to 10 months, somebody new who has to learn over a period of a month and still not meet regular effectiveness up until a couple months later, who may or may not stay for any extended period of time based on the efficacy of what around them, the nervous system that they become a part of that doesn't vibe mm -hmm. with their own internal nervous system, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. I think a couple of things come to mind. We do have data from the International Coaching Federation. They put out an annual report every year. And the last version of it that I saw, and it's available online for free, folks can get the executive summary if they'd like to check it out. It may really help conversations you're having internally to your own organization or even on your team about how we create space for this and how it might help. Um, the latest data that they put out, I wanna say it was a report from 2021, showed that in each case that they looked at, coaching had an ROI of five to eight times a return on investment of five to eight times what it cost to implement. And that is because it ramifies in all these ways we're speaking about, right? Replacement cost of a staff person who's skilled and is a match for the culture, difficult to quantify that in dollars. We know it's a lot more than dollars, but even just the recruiting and the hiring and the productivity loss, we can definitely quantify that and it's massive. The morale, the engagement piece, also massive. So there are data out there that can help us, help other leaders learn to see the value of this. There's also, I believe this was also ICF. Um, ICF recently published a report on the impact of coaching and social impact organizations. And it showed how providing coaching for leaders in specific uh, organizations that are working internationally, I think they were all in the child welfare space all around the world, uh, improved outcomes for the people and communities that they served as well. So when we put together, it helps the organization be in a much more stable place. And in these very unstable times, that's extremely important. With, it helps us to live our mission more fully, like you were pointing to earlier, right? We've all got our shiny mission statement on the wall, but how real is it really? <laughs> and are we reaching everyone we can reach with the resources we have? When we put those two buckets together, we start to get a really compelling argument for why we can't afford not to do this. And there are also multiple ways that organizations can move in this direction. Not all of them are super high cost. My previous work in healthcare before I became more explicitly focused on coaching was uh, centered on process improvement. So we talk a lot about how to structure a pilot like a really thoughtful pilot program that is supported by external resources that then turns into a train the trainer that can disseminate the skills across the organization. That is an incredibly efficient way to get pieces of this. Not everybody's gotta be a master level coach, but having something in your tool belt that allows you to come from a coach approach when it will serve isn't as high a bar to clear as I think a lot of organizations may fear it to be. They start to see lots of dollar signs and think, oh my goodness, this isn't gonna work for us. So be creative about how you structure it and be really, uh, be really wise in your use of data because we get more and more these days because we've had this need to help organizations see for so long. ICF, International Coaching Federation is a great resource um, and there are others out there too. So we can, help people to see it the way that we see it. And it's going to take time. Um, and even this is like the meta view of the conversation we're already having, like as we're advocating for bringing more coaching to organizations, we also have to take good care of ourselves because everyone who's advocating for this 
is also feeling the strain that we've been talking about throughout feeling like they've got too much on their plate. They may not be getting the support that they need. So being really mindful as we fight that fight, what's the internal dialogue that you're having with yourself around this? What's your support system? Who can you lean on? What are your practices for returning yourself to center? So you can come from a place that's resourced and resourceful rather than just draining your batteries in service of something that really matters to you, which is very easy for me helping types to get into. Uh, it takes constant consciousness to resist that habitual pull into just serving others and forgetting to serve ourselves. Indeed, indeed. What are some of the most powerful ways leaders and teams can show up differently to support improve resilience and well-being for those that they serve? Oh, I love this question, Chris. It starts with how we show up as humans. It starts with our presence, our being. There is a lot of doing that we feel pulled into. Late stage capitalism doesn't help with that. Productivity targets and our sort of uh, financial obligations don't necessarily help with that. But there's so much power in just being with a group of people as your integrated, whole, messy, imperfect human self. A really powerful leader in this field, Dorothy Semenovich, says, our presence is an intervention. Our presence is an intervention. When you show up to a meeting with folks who look like they've been through the ringer, it starts with recognizing the part of you that resonates with that, the part of you that feels tired, the part of you that's feeling vulnerable, perhaps afraid, and not just sticking to the silver lining like we often pressure ourselves to do. It is important to be able to see how something can yield something better, even if it's really challenging. But in that first moment, when you're in that room with the people who are struggling and holding something heavy, share with them that you are holding something heavy, that you see them holding something heavy. Acknowledge the difficulty. Leave space for it. Don't make it wrong and don't flatten it or skip over it by simply saying, wow, we've really been going above and beyond. We have so much to celebrate. That's true. And it's not the only thing that's true. The other thing that's true is we're humans and we are struggling to feel human. So resourcing ourselves, acknowledging what we're actually experiencing speaking to other folks who look to us from that place of acknowledgement. And then of course, practicing some of the really important coaching skills that come from the place of when we're centered and resourced in ourselves, curiosity, compassion, creativity, witnessing other people, refusing to believe anything but the best in them knowing that we're going to get through it and find something great on the other side. All of that's made possible when we use our presence as an intervention. What's the most fascinating, what's most fascinating to you in this space right now? I mean, you seem to be very, very in it to win it, but what's the most fascinating to you in this space right now? Mm. I think it's just, there's a part of me that is just delighting in seeing the steady sort of dawning of this new awareness that coaching skills, empathy, communication, listening are not soft skills. They are human ones. I'm seeing it all over. Of course we can see it more. Of course there are more ways that we can engender that and live from it in our world. And I think a lot of us feel really passionate about bringing that more, myself very much included. But even a few years ago, we held soft skills separate from hard skills. Now I'm seeing conversations on LinkedIn between engineering leaders about how human skills can support coding more effectively. 
there's some really cool stuff that's bubbling. And I think it's in part because we've all been taken down a couple notches, feeling really humbled in the face of just being alive on the planet in the last few years. And it's allowed us to realize that these are not luxury items. These skills are how we get through life, feeling like whole, human, happy, effective beings rather than shards of our previous selves. I think that's something that's fascinating to me and it's also giving me hope. Hmm. That's what we need now, hope. Indeed. Burnout is a high theme in many episodes of More Than Therapy and many supervisions I have, not only for myself, but for those that I'm involved in as the supervisee. Burnout, what advice do you have for leaders, healers, and helpers who may be experiencing burnout right now? Mm. I've got advice. And first, I just have acknowledgement. There is a lot of shame that can come with recognizing that we're experiencing burnout. We're the ones who help. We don't need the help. We're capable of compartmentalizing. So why is our compartment broken? Let's just be with the fact that this is hard and it challenges our ideas of who we are and how we need to be in the world in order to be of service. At the same time, how on earth could we not be experiencing burnout? How on earth could we not be? We're all human and we've been asked to do superhuman things for a really long time. So I think first, maybe here it's in this acknowledgement, the first most important piece of advice is practice self-compassion. Practice just noticing that this is happening for you, being discerning without being judgmental when you see it, and practicing holding the parts of yourself that that helps you to see are really hurting. More strategic advice that I have, I thought about this and I feel like I could, I'll probably write a book one day, but since we don't have book length time together today, Chris, I'll say there are like three really important things that I wanna highlight here. Number one, our thoughts create our feelings, which build our behaviors, our beliefs, and our habits. While left to its own devices, that means most of our habitual thinking is unconscious and based in fear. But the brain is trainable like any other part of the body. So practice training your brain to focus on what is healthy and whole and capable and resilient in you. Practice training your brain to return to center when you get thrown off. Practice training your brain to appreciate the moment that we are in rather than fearing the future or regretting the past. And really pay attention to which part of your brain is talking to you when you feel terrible. If you really pay attention, that conversation is super toxic. And I'm betting you're talking to yourself in ways you would never speak to a person that you loved. Number two, emotions are data. Susan David says this, she's got TED Talks, she's got books, everyone should read them and watch them. Emotions are vital sources of information. They help us to see experiences we need to have, the things we most deeply care about, and actions we need to take from that place. So practicing allowing and exploring our emotions is crucial for our vitality, our resilience, our well-being. But here's the thing. We don't have to fixate on the difficult emotion in order to get the message. We have to check in with it. We have to allow some level of experiencing it but we don't have to stay in despondency, despair, in self-hatred, self-criticism for very long in order to notice, hmm, there's a message here for me. What do I wanna do about it? What matters most to me right now that this is helping me to see? This is another way we're training the brain. We're not shying away from the difficult emotion, but we're also not identifying with it. 
You can observe it and be curious about it, seek to learn from it. And in so doing, you regulate yourself back to center. The last thing, the last thing, at least for now, is that the body is much more deeply connected to the brain and influential on the brain than many of us realize. For folks interested in exploring that more, I would highly recommend Your Body is Your Brain by Amanda Blake. It's an incredible book. What I'll say for now is living our lives above the neck only is like living with blinders on. Our connective tissue science now understands as a sensory organ, helping us to make sense of the world around us. Most of our serotonin is produced in our gut, not in our brain. And most of the information exchanged between our body and our brain comes from the body to the brain, not the other way around. So it's vitally important that we're not just taking care of our thought patterns, our emotional experiences, but our actual embodied experience of having a body in this world that is experiencing difficulty, that's also experiencing delight, and that is helping us to make sense of the world and ourselves. So much more I wanna say about that, but I really hope that that serves. And if anyone wants to talk more about this, as you can tell, I'm hungry too, you can reach out to me. My website is up on the screen. I'd love to chat more with any nerds like me. Indeed. Well, you just alluded to that. How can people learn more about you or request your support? I'm on your website right now, samshapirocoaching.com. I'm in the you section and I'm looking at, you know, your points of learning, you know, and you ask, who are you at your best? What gives you life? And what do you really want? And just sitting there, sitting in, you know, in solace regarding those three questions. It really makes me think and focus on how far removed I might be from my best self currently, you know. In the mm. heel section, you ask the questions, the big secret, you're already whole. And just knowing that, reconfirming that as, you know, like you said, when you feel burnt out, you feel shame, you feel stigma associated with it. Because you, as the healing professional, you're supposed to have all the answers. What people fail to realize is we're human with a set of skills. You know what I'm saying? Those skills mm -hmm. may not always be right there at the tip of our use. And I think those that, those of us that go through it are more empathetic, more genuine in our approach to our client base because we've been through the fire too. I think the pandemic really opened up clinicians' eyes to that, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? As a lot mm -hmm. of times they may have had, and I'm not saying they did, but let's just, because the English language is so limited, God-like uh, appearances to their clients because they knew mm -hmm. all the answers and knew all the things to do where the pandemic itself humbled them in many ways. In the yeah. transform section, forget inching towards your vision and let's launch you there together in the lead section show up like you mean it and fire your inner critic and connect with your inner badass well i gotta find my badass he's been gone a long long time <laughs> mm. and what i can tell about you chris is that it's a big-hearted badass that's inside of you right so there's yeah. like this part of the beautiful process that I go through with my clients is just discovering like, what are you about? What's your life about? What matters to you? What lights you up? What values are you honoring most in your life now? And what are the ones you're most hungry to honor more, right? So it's reconnecting. It's remembering the parts of ourselves that maybe have fallen into disuse um, or that we have stopped, stopped holding as sacred as they really are. And that's where all of the, the work that I do begins is just helping to reconnect folks to themselves because it's really only from that place that we can help others in any lasting way that is really aligned to our values and our health and well-being over the longer term. Folks can get in touch with me through my website. There's a little form there. You can tell me a little bit about what you're interested in and we can have a conversation that way. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm there probably more than I should be. So if you reach out, I'm likely to get back to you quite soon. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I have a private practice where I support individuals, but I also really love speaking to groups. And I offer group coaching and workshops on the topics that we talked about today. 
I'm also launching an eight-week small group mental fitness program that's really designed to help folks upgrade our internal processing system and develop greater mastery over the mind to enhance well-being, effectiveness, and relationships. Um, there are some scholarships, full and partial, that I'm going to be offering for that program. Uh, that's a really important core value of mine um, is making this accessible to the folks who need it most. So if you feel like you would like to participate and you're concerned about your ability, please let me know and we'll find a way, okay? Um, and then I also, in addition to the work that I do individually, I'm so privileged to be a part of a really cool, inspiring collective of coaches and therapists and consultants dedicated to developing more conscious leadership in the world. And our founder and CEO, Kayvon Tucker, has had a ton of amazing experience in that space. He helped to lead Google's internal coach training program, helping hundreds of leaders who hadn't previously seen themselves as coaches begin to come from a coach approach and to really develop and transform the culture to support more coaching. And we're called Consciously, and we're actively looking for partners uh, to work with in organizations in 2023. So if you're in an organization that you think needs more of this, let's talk. Uh, and you can get in touch with us at consciously.one. So lots of opportunities for us to continue the conversation and perhaps for me to be of support. Um, and I'm just so grateful to have had the opportunity to talk about the thing that lights me up most of all. So thank you, Chris, for, for holding the space and inviting me to share it with you. Thank you. You um, gave us a lot of education, a lot of points of reference to be better and to get better. As we close out, do you have any words you'd like to share with the audience before we end this episode of the Mortar Therapy Podcast? I think just we are human, we are all healing, and you don't have to do it alone. Indeed. Find out more about and reach out for consultation or more information at samshapirocoaching.com. That's samshapirocoaching.com. This has been another episode of the Morton Therapy Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Morton Therapy Podcast anywhere in which you push play to listen to your favorite podcast. That's the Morton Therapy Podcast. Be well and be great.